one chapter seven of clara vaughan volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by lynn thompson clara vaughan volume one by r d blackmore book one chapter seven the spring of the year 1849 was remarkable throughout the western counties for long drought. I know not how it might be in the east of England, but I have observed that in the west long droughts occur only in the spring and early summer. In the autumn we have sometimes as much as six weeks without rain, and in the summer a month at most. But all the real droughts, so far as my experience goes, commence in February or March. These are, however, so rare, and April has won such poetic fame for showers, and July for heat and dryness, that what I state is at variance with the popular impression. Be that as it may, about Valentine's Day, 1849, and after a length of very changeable weather, the wind fixed its home in the east, and the sky for a week was grey and monotonous. Brilliant weather ensued white frost at night and strong sun by day. The frost became less biting as the year went on, and the sun more powerful. There were two or three overcast days, and people hoped for rain, but no rain fell, except one poor drizzle, more like dew than rain. With habits now so ingrained as to become true pleasures, I marked the effects of the drought on all the scene around me. The meadows took the colour of Russian leather, the cornland sat of a knife-board. The young leaves of the wood hung pinched and crisp, unable to shake off their tunics, and more like catkins than leaves. The pools went low and dark and thick, with a coppery scum. In autumn it would have been green. And little bubbles came up and popped where the earth cracked round the sides. The tap-rooted plants looked comely and brave in the morning, after their drink of dew but flagged and flopped in the afternoon, as a clubbed cabbage does. As for those which had only the surface to suck, they dried by the acre, and powdered away like the base of a bonfire. The ground was hard as horn, and fissured in stars and angles and jagged, gaping cracks, like a dissecting map or a badly plastered wall. It amused me sometimes to see a beetle suddenly cut off from his home by that which to him was an earthquake. How he would run to and fro, look doubtfully into this dark abyss, then, rising to the occasion, bridge his road with a straw. The snails shrunk close in their shells, and resigned themselves to a spongy distance of slime. The birds might be seen in the morning, hopping over the hollows of the shrunken ponds, prying for worms, which had shut themselves up like cadises, deep in the thirsty ground. Our lake, which was very deep at the lower end, became a refuge for all the widgeons and coots and moorhens of the neighbourhood, and the quick-diving grebe, and even the summer snipe, with his wild and lonely cheep. The brink of the water was feathered and dabbled with countless impressions of feet of all sorts, dibbers and waders and wagtails and weasels and otters and foxes and the boars of a thousand bills, and mussels laid high and dry. 
For my own pet robins I used to fill pans with water along the edge of the grass, for I knew their dislike of the mineral spring, which never went dry, and to these they would fly down and drink, and perk up their impudent heads, and sluice their poor little dusty wings, and then, as they could not sing now, they would give me a chirp of gratitude. When the drought had lasted about three months, the east wind, which till then had been cold and creeping, became suddenly parching hot. Arid and heavy and choking, it panted along the glades, like a dog on a dusty road. It came down the water meadows, where the crow's foot grew, and wild celery, and it licked up the dregs of the stream, and powdered the floodgates, all skeletons now, with grey dust. It came through the copse, and the young leaves shrunk before it, like a child from the hiss of a snake. The blast pushed the doors of our house, and its dry, wrinkled hand was laid on the walls and the staircase and woodwork. A hot grime tracked its steps, and a taint fell on all that was fresh. As it folded its baleful wings and lay down like a desert dragon, vegetation so long a time sick gave way at last to despair, and flagged off, flapped and dead. The clammy grey dust, like hot sand thrown from ramparts, ate to the core of everything, choking the shriveled paws and stifling the languid breath. Old gaffers were talking of moraine in cattle, and famine and plague among men, and farmers were too badly off to grumble. But the change even now was at hand. The sky, which had long presented a hard and cloudless blue, but trailing a light haze round its rim in the morning, was bedimmed more every day, with a white scudding vapour across it. The sun grew larger and paler, and leaned more on the heavens, which soon became ribbed with white skeleton clouds, and these in their turn grew softer and deeper, then furry and ravelled and wisped. One night the hot east wind dropped, and next morning, though the vane had not changed, the clouds drove heavily from the southwest. But these signs of rain grew for several days before a single drop fell. As is always the case after discontinuance, it was hard to begin again. Indeed, the sky was amassed with black clouds, and the dust went swirling like a mat beaten over the trees, and the air became cold, and the wind moaned three days and three nights, and yet no rain fell. As old Whitehead, the man at the lodge, well observed, it had forgotten the way to rain. Then it suddenly cleared one morning, the 28th of May, and the west was streaked with red clouds that came up to crow at the sun, and the wind for the time was lulled, and the hills looked close to my hand. So I went to my father's grave without the little green watering pot or a trowel to fill the chinks, for I knew it would rain that very day. In the eastern shrubbery there was a pond, which my father had taken much trouble to make and adorn. It was not fed by the mineral spring, for that was thought likely to injure the fish, but by a larger and purer stream called the Witch's Brook, which, however, was now quite dry. This pond had been planted around and through with silver weed, thrumwort, and sunclue, water lilies, arrowhead, and the rare double frog bit and other aquatic plants, some of them brought from a long distance. At one end there was a grotto, 
cased with fantastic porous stone, and inside it a small fountain played. But now the fountain was silent, and the pond shrunk almost to its centre. The silver eels, which once had abounded here, finding their element likely to fail, made a migration one dewy night overland to the lake below. The fish, in vain envy of that great enterprise, huddled together in the small wet space which remained, with their back fins here and there above water. When one came near, they dashed away, as I have seen grey mullet do in the shallow seaside pools. Several times I had water poured in for their benefit, but it was gone again directly. The mud round the edge of the remnant puddle was baked and cracked and foul with an oozy green sludge, the relic of water-weeds. This little lake, once so clear and pretty, and full of bright dimples and crystal shadows, now looked so forlorn and wasted and old, like a bright eye worn dim with years, and the trees stood round it so faded and wan, the poplar unkempt of its silver and green, the willow without wherewithal to weep, and the sprays of the birch lay dead at its feet. Altogether it looked so empty and sad and piteous that I had been deeply grieved for the sake of him who had loved it. So when the sky clouded up again in the afternoon of that day, I hastened thither to mark the first effects of the rain. As I reached the white shell walk, which loosely girt the pond, the lead-coloured sky took a greyer and woollier cast, and overhead became blurred and pulpy, while round the horizon it lifted in frayed festoons. As I took my seat in the grotto, the big drops began to patter among the dry leaves, and the globules rolled in the dust like parched peas. A long hissing sound ensued, and a cloud of powder went up, and the trees moved their boughs with a heavy, dull sway. Then broke from the laurels the song of the long, silent thrush, and reptiles and insects, and all that could move darted forth to rejoice in the freshness. The earth sent forth that smell of sweet newness, the breath of young nature awaking, which reminds us of milk and of clover, of balm and the smile of a child. But most of all, it was in and around the pool that the signs of new life were stirring. As the circles began to jostle, and the bubbles sailed closer together, the water, the slime, and the banks danced, flickered, and darkened, with a whirl of living creatures. The surface was brushed as green corn is floored by the wind, and the quivering dip of swallows' wings, and the ripples that raced to the land splashed over the feet of the wagtails. Here, as I marked all narrowly, and seemed to rejoice in their gladness, a sudden new wonder befell me. I was watching a monster frog emerge from his penthouse of ooze, and lift with some pride his brown spots and his bright golden throat from the matted green cake of dry weed, when a quick gleam shot through the fibres. With a listless curiosity, wondering whether the frog, like his cousin the toad, were a jeweller, I advanced to the brim of the pool. The poor frog looked timidly at me, with his large starting eyes, then, shouldering off the green coil, made one rapid spring and was safe in the water. But his movement had further disclosed some glittering object below. Determined to know what it was, despite the rain, I placed some large pebbles for steps, ran lightly, and lifted the weed. Before me lay, as bright as if polished that day, 
with the jewelled hilt towards me a long narrow dagger with a haste too rapid for thought to keep up i snatched it and rushed for the grotto there in the drought of my long revenge with eyes on fire and teeth set hard and dry and every root in my heart cleaving and crying to heaven for blood i poured on that weapon whose last sheath had been how well i knew what i did not lift it towards god nor fall on my knees and make a theatrical vow for that there was no necessity but for the moment my life and my soul seemed to pass along that cold blade just as my father's had done a treacherous blue three-cornered blade with a point as keen as a viper's fang sublustrous like ice in the moonlight sleuth as hate and tenacious as death to my curdled and fury-struck vision it seemed to writhe in the gleam of the storm which played along it like a corpse candle i fancied how it had quivered and wrung to find itself deep in that heart my passions at length overpowered me and i lay how long i know not utterly insensible when i came to myself again the storm had passed over the calm pool covered my stepping stones the shrubs and trees wept joy in the moonlight the nightingales sang in the elms healing and beauty were in the air peace and content walked abroad on the earth the may moon slept on the water before me and streamed through the grotto arch but there it fell cold and ghost-like upon the tool of murder over this i hastily flung my scarf coward perhaps i was for i could not handle it then but fled to the house and dreamed in my lonely bed when i examined the dagger next day i found it to be of foreign fabric ferrati bologna the name and abode of the maker as i supposed was damascened on the hilt a cross like that on the footprint but smaller and made of gold was inlaid on the blade just above the handle the hilt itself was wreathed with a snake of green enamel having garnet eyes from the fine temper of the metal or some annealing process it showed not a stain of rust and the blood which remained after writing the letters before described had probably been washed off by the water i laid it most carefully by along with my other relics in a box which i always kept locked so god as i thought by his sun and his seasons and weather and the mind he had so prepared was holding the clue for me and shaking it clear from time to time along my dark and many winding path End of chapter 7